0: Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they heard all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as, this law, as all this law that I have set before you today? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. love it. God is good. Come on. God is good. All the time. time. God is good. good. All the time. time. He is and he's gracious and he doesn't leave us alone to make sense out of life on our own, but he's spoken to us in kindness and love and mercy for his glory and for our good. What Anna just read is not Anna's opinion. It's not your opinion. It's God's word and we should ask that he would teach us. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for making us your people. And thank you for speaking to us. We pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear but not just to hear, but to learn. Lord, we long to be more than hearers of the word, we wanna be doers of the word, and so we pray, Father, that you, by the power of your spirit, would engrave your words on our hearts, and that you would compel us out to live in the way that you called us to live. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and along with Aaron Sands, I'm one of the elders here at City Church. If you're visiting with us, welcome. I really do mean this. Thank you for the privilege of your time and of your presence. You may be familiar with or you may not be familiar with the name Thomas Beckett. Thomas Beckett was born in London, England on December 21st, eleven nineteen. That's a thousand years ago. Thomas we don't know a whole lot about Thomas, but what we do know about Thomas is that he was a pretty good guy. He was kind of slow to speak because he had a stutter. And, that, and, and, and the way that he sort of dealt with that was he became a very good listener. And he gave trusted counsel. So much so that Theobald um, of Beck, who was the then um, Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the head of the church in England, took him on. But what what, what Theobald realized over time was that Thomas didn't have very much interest in the church or in its affairs. So in 1155, Theobald recommended Thomas to this new young king named Henry II for this position, for the position of chancellor. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear the word chancellor, but think glorified tax collector. I mean, Thomas's job was to collect taxes from the subjects of Henry's land to make sure that the king's coffers were filled and to line his pockets um, as well. And while Thomas and Henry were very different, I mean, Thomas was quiet, Henry was boisterous and loud and impulsive, Thomas and, and Henry became very fast friends. Early in 19, or 1162, Theobald of Beck dies. Now Henry, he never really liked Theobald of Beck. He didn't like the way that Theobald meddled in the affairs of the king. He didn't like the way that Theobald functioned as a check and a balance to his power. So Henry seized the opportunity. Making, uh, he seized the opportunity given to him by Theobald's death. I mean, how better to get around the religious requirements on his power than by making his good friend, Thomas Beckett, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So on June 2nd, 1162, that's what happened. Thomas Beckett was consecrated. He was ordained as Archbishop of Canterbury. But something happened. Something happened in that moment to Thomas Beckett. When Thomas Beckett took that sacred oath, he was changed. He was, he was transformed. And as a result... Thomas's primary allegiance went from the king to the king. Thomas came under a higher authority. Giving up his chancellorship, he devoted himself completely to this new calling. And to Henry's great disappointment and consternation, Thomas vowed to protect the priests, and to protect the place and the role of the church even more than Theobald of Beck. Now, why do I tell you this? It's because Thomas's story is an example of what happens when a person encounters the living God. When a person or a people encounter the living God, God not only makes them his sons and daughters, But he actually changes their entire lives, the entire trajectory of their lives. We've seen this over and over in the weeks past. When we looked at Abraham, Abraham, when he first encounters God, is an idolater, and he's from an idolatrous family, and his his wife is barren. She can't have children. God comes to him, and he calls him. He says, Abraham, I want to bless you, and through you and your descendants, I want to bless." all the families of the earth. And what happens? The entire trajectory of Abraham's life is changed forever. He leaves his country, he leaves his kindred, he leaves his family, and he follows the call of God on his life. And what we see as we read on in the story of the Bible is that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. And what that means is that like Abraham, the trajectory of our lives has been changed forever. More than that, it means that Abraham's calling to be a blessing to all the families of the earth has become our calling or consider the nation of Israel, enslaved for centuries in Egypt. God miraculously rescues them and he brings them to Mount Sinai. What does he do at Mount Sinai? He gives them an entirely new identity. Formerly, they had been slaves, but now he calls them his treasured possession. But more than that, God changes the trajectory of their lives as well. At Mount Sinai, he both invites and commands the Israelites to partner with him in his mission to the world, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, pointing people like a spotlight to God. And of course, as we've talked about, those words, that that call is exactly how Peter describes believers in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Now, what this means is that if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, if you are a Jesus follower, you as an individual and us as a people, our trajectories have been changed forever forever. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he or she is a new creation. But more than that, if you are in Christ Jesus, God has called you into mission. He has called you into his mission. What is this mission? Well, through the prophet Isaiah, God answers, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus himself reaffirms what God said through the prophet Isaiah in the Sermon on the Mount when he says to believers, you are the light of the world. Now this fall, we're doing a sermon series called A Light to the Nations, and we're asking the question, what is the mission of the church? And quite simply, the mission of the church is this, you are the light of the nations. The mission of City Church of East Nashville is you are the light to the nations. And your mission as a believer is this, you are a light to the nations. What you you need to see, what you need to know, what you need to believe is that when Jesus calls us a light to the world, light to the nations, light to the world, He's not just describing some specific activity that we do alongside a bunch of other activities. Like, he's not saying, uh, the church is supposed to do this, that, and the other, and oh yeah, the church is to be a light to the nations. He's actually describing the very essence and identity of the church. What I mean is that this is not just what we are called to do This is who we are. You are a light to the world. There are certain things that a church can and can't do and still be the church. For instance, we're gonna have a third Sunday lunch after our worship service this morning and I would encourage you, come join us. Break bread with us. But if for some reason we decided in the future to do away with the third Sunday dinner, we would still be the church. But if we decided, hey, um, we don't think we wanna be the light to the world any longer, we would actually stop being the church. Now here's the question. What What exactly does it mean to be a light to the world? What what does it mean to be a light to the nations? What does it look like to be a light to the nations? Well, the answer to that question is multifaceted. And today we're gonna dive into one particular passage that lays out for us what it means to be a light to the world. And what we'll see is that being a light to the world is all about obedience. Obedience to God's will and God's ways. Now, it's been about 40 years since God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. It's been about 40 years since he entered into a covenant relationship with him where he declares, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's been about 40 years since God's presence came and made its dwelling among God's people. And that's incredibly important to keep in mind, particularly as we think about our passage, because our passage has a whole lot to do with the law, with obedience. And, And you might be tempted to think, that what God is saying to you is is if you keep the law, if you keep my law, then I will save you. But that would be to completely ignore everything that's happened up to this point in Israel's story. Israel, Israel's already been saved. It's been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Israel has become the dwelling place of God, God already exists in the tabernacle. He lives within the midst of His people, and now the Israelites are standing on the bank of the Jordan River, and and, and Moses is preparing them as His treasured possession to enter into and take possession of God's promised land. What we see in this passage is that being the light of the world, being a light to the nations, means being a visible people. Look at verse six. Moses is talking to the Israelites about the commandments of God. And he says, keep them, keep God's commandments and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. The Israelites know that in the land, they're going to encounter and they're going to live in the midst of unbelieving peoples and nations. They know that their life is going to be lived on a very public stage, that their story is to be an open book to the watching world. They know that they're going to be under constant surveillance. They're going to be a people on display People are going to be watching. And we see the same thing in the New Testament. When Jesus preaches his sermon on the mount, he says, you are the light of the world. And immediately after he says that, he says this. He says, a city on the hill cannot be hidden. We don't make much of that. But think about it for a second. A city on a hill at night, a city on a hill at night with torches burning and lamps lit, it can be seen from miles and miles away. Beloved, that's who and what Israel was called to be. And that's who and what we are called to be. You are a light, to the nations. You are the light of the world, which means we are to be visible in East Nashville. We are to be visible to our neighbors. We are to be visible to our coworkers. We are to be visible to our classmates. But what are our neighbors? What are our classmates? What are our coworkers supposed to see? What is the watching world supposed to conclude when they see us? Well, that brings us to the second point on the outline, that being the light of the world means being an attractive people. How does Moses expect the nations surrounding the people of Israel to, re- to react to what they hear and what they see in the Israelites. Look at the very end of verse six, Moses says that the people will say, surely this is a great nation, uh, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What was supposed to elicit this kind of response from the surrounding peoples? Well, the beginning of verse six, Moses says, keep the commandments of God and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Think about that for a second. Keep the commandments of God and do them. That will be your wisdom among the peoples. That's not typically how we would expect unbelievers to react when it comes to the, the Ten Commandments, is it? Um, And if we're really honest, it's typically not the way we react to hearing the law of God either. And that reveals something, not just about them, but about us. That, That there's something fundamentally wrong with us. That that we still need Jesus today, just like we did yesterday and the day before and the day before. Even as believers, oftentimes we think that God's law is a burden rather than a description of true beauty. I want to suggest to you that we need to see two things. First, we have to remember that God's mission since the fall in Eden has been to restore his good creation, to rescue it and to redeem it, and to make it new. And the law of God, it actually describes what life was like before sin entered into the world. As Michael the a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, puts it, the life of Israel was to point back to the creation, creational design and intention for human life. But more than that, the life of Israel was actually to point forward to God's final goal to restore creation. In other words... God's law is not just the way things were supposed to be, but God's law is a picture of the way things will be. It's how we were created and redeemed to be and to live. Second, when we compare the law of God to what was practiced among the surrounding nations in the ancient Near East, what we discover is that God's law was nothing less than revolutionary. For example, Canaanite kings owned all of the land of their kingdoms and they allowed people to farm on their kingdoms, but they demanded a high tax in payment. But the law of God provides free land to God's people and it makes provision for both social and and economic justice, gleaning laws. Gleaning laws meant that part of the harvest was to be left for the poor. Tithing provided for the Levites and for the poor. Laws governed a fair play for workers and even animals. And here's the thing, God's law went beyond basic justice to benevolent care for the weak and for the vulnerable. God in his law commands, there shall be no poor among you. And we see over and over throughout the Old Testament that this responsibility to care for the oppressed, for the hungry, for the, for the prisoner, for the blind, for the stranger, for the foreigner, for the fatherless, for the widow, is actually grounded in God's character and in his love and concern for the poor and the vulnerable. And God's concern for the disenfranchised, for the oppressed, for the poor, for the weak, isn't just an Old Testament phenomenon. This isn't just something that the Israelites were called to do. This is something that we are called to do. James, in his letter, says this. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why does God call the Israelites to obedience? It's because the lives of the obedient, the the lives of the Israelites was to be a picture of the way life is supposed to be. It's, It's a picture of beauty. And as we see in our passage, it is intended to arouse the admiration and envy of the unbelieving peoples that live around us. But how are, how are, the, how are the nations going to see this picture? It's, it's not by us pointing our fingers and telling them they're wrong and they need to obey. In verse six, Moses says, keep God's commandments and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And then he says this, for what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the law that is set before you today? Do you, do you understand what Moses is saying? Moses is saying that the nations will see our obedience and our obedience will be a testimony to the nearness of God. You see, you can't see God You can't see the nearness of God. You can't see the presence of God. The only practical evidence, the only physical evidence, the only visible evidence of God's presence in your life and in my life is the way we live our lives. Loving God, loving each other, and loving our neighbor. You know this is true. In his book called Favorite Psalms, John Stott writes this. Non-Christian people are watching us. We claim to know, to love, and to follow Jesus Christ. We say that he is our savior, our Lord and our friend. What difference does he make to those Christians, the world asks searchingly. Where is their God? It may be said without fear of contradiction that the greatest hindrance to evangelism in the world today is the failure of the church to supply evidence in her own life and work of the saving power of God. Hard words, but true. And then he says this, he says, rightly may we pray for ourselves that we may have God's blessing and mercy and the light of his countenance not that we may then monopolize his grace and bask in the sunshine of his favor, but that others may see in us his blessing and his beauty and be drawn to him through us. Beloved, obedience. It's how, it's how we do our mission. Let me ask a couple of questions Does the way we live our lives, both individually and corporately, does it arouse the admiration and envy of the unbelieving people around us? What might that admiration and envy look like? Are we both individually and as a community living our lives, living lives that attract the unbelieving world? How would you know if we are? Being the light of the world means being a visible people. Being the light of the world also means being an attractive people. And lastly, being the light of the world means being an alternative people. What I mean by that is that being the light of the world means that we need to be a counter culture. It's clear from the picture that Moses paints in this passage that the nations see something different in the people of God than they see in themselves or than they see in the people who live around them. For us, this means that we are to be an alternate, an alternate Nashville in Nashville. What does this difference look like? Moses tells us: keep the commandments of God and do them. You see. What the law of God says about how we use our money and how we use our possessions is radically different than what most Nashvillians believe about money and possessions. What the law of God says about sex and about marriage is radically different than what most Nashvillians believe about sex and about marriage. The law of God says about relationships and power, and con- what the law of God says about relationships, power, and conflict is radically different than what most Nashvilleans believe about and do with relationships and power and conflict. And what that means is that God's will and God's ways need to be more than something we simply agree with. That his will and his way needs to be more than something we just talk about. It needs to be more than something that just convicts us. God's will and God's ways need to be something we actually do. James says, don't be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Here's the thing, if the world around us looks at City Church and it looks at the people of City Church, and it doesn't see us living any differently than the rest of the people of Nashville when it comes to the way we use our money, or when it comes to the way we understand and honor God's good gift of sex in marriage, or when it comes to the way we use our time and our possessions, or when it comes to the way we use our privilege, or when it comes to our concern for and actual involvement with and care for the poor and the vulnerable, then We aren't being the light of the world. We aren't fulfilling our calling. We aren't faithfully participating in the mission of God. That's the story of Israel. Instead of living their lives in such a way that it drew drew the nations to the Lord, they were drawn to the gods of the nations in around 587 BC, when the Babylonian armies conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, Israel's light was ex- extinguished. But the story doesn't end there because God is the God of promise. He said to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and through your descendants, I'm gonna bless all the families of the earth. How's he gonna do this? John 1 In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. How does Jesus describe himself to his followers? In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what that means is that Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came to do what Israel miserably failed to do. But do you remember what happened when Jesus was crucified? Matthew tells us, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. In the same way that Israel's light was extinguished in 587 BC, Jesus, the light of the world, was extinguished on the cross. But unlike Israel, Jesus was not extinguished for his sins. He was extinguished for your sins and for my sins, for our sins. And three days later, Jesus was resurrected to new life. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter one that in Christ Jesus' life and death, resurrection and ascension, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And what that means is that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining you know what that means don't you it means that you can be the light of the world not perfectly but you can pursue that you can lean into that this is why, this is why Jesus can say to us you are the light of the world this is what Jesus came to do and is doing through us as he dwells within us by his spirit He came to be extinguished for our sins and he came to enable us to walk in his light as he is light. And what that means for us today, right here, right now, is that we are and we can be the light of the world. We are and we can be a visible people. We are and we can be an attractive people. We are and we can be an alternative people. That's what God is calling us to right here, right now. Now, here's the last question. I'll close with this. Does this strategy actually work? I mean, does the way we live our lives in obedience to God's law have the kind of impact that Moses was talking about? Well, consider the observations of John Dixon in his book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. Humanly speaking, no one would have thought it possible to bring the nations to the worship of God through simple good deeds. How on earth could good deeds change a realm as mighty as the Roman Empire, let alone the whole world? As unlikely as it may have sounded at the time, Jesus' called to be light of the world was taken seriously by his disciples. They devoted themselves to, heroic, to quite heroic acts of godliness. They loved their enemies. They prayed for their persecutors and they cared for the poor wherever they found them. And the result, within two and a half centuries, Christians had gone from being a small band of several hundred Palestinian Jews to conquering the Roman Empire. In fact, the influence of Christian good works was so great in the fourth century that the emperor Julian became fearful that Christianity might take over the whole world. Oh, that the same could be said of us. And it can be. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And then he said, let your lights shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's the question. Do you believe Him? And will you obey Him? Pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for, when, for, for calling us, not just to Yourself, but calling us into mission. Lord, Lord, We pray that your presence would be so real, so palpable among us that we couldn't help but but live according to your will and your ways. Lord, we pray that you would make us a more visible people, unashamed of you, unashamed of your ways. We pray that you would make us a more beautiful people, that that, that the people around us would look at us and, and say, I don't know what they have, but I want it. And Lord, would you make us willing to be a counterculture, an alternative people? Lord, we need you to do this. And we ask you to do this in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.